This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. Steve Love along with Thomas Miller. And we're continuing our discussion, obviously, about COVID 19. We could not have a better guest to be with us today than Dr. John Carlo. You've probably seen him on TV, heard him on the radio. John, day job is he's president and CEO of Prison Health North Texas. He has a tremendous amount of experience in that he has served as president and chair of the Dallas County Medical Society, and he's worked in the Department of Health, and he's a familiar face here in the DFW area. John, welcome to the show. Well, hello, and thank you for having me. You know, John, as we look at things have opened up and we're in the incubation period, we're watching things and people are running models. I've looked at a lot of the different models. Why is there so much variation in epidemic models and how they predict outcomes? Well, that's a great question. I think the first part is the reason the models all have a lot of different pieces to it is because they're using different assumptions and different uh, sort of pieces of information that will create different, uh, you know, sort of outcomes or or projected outcomes. You know, it's not unlike when we see hurricanes uh, come through. If you see the weather forecasts, oftentimes you see these models projecting all sorts of different paths. And so models are not perfect by any means. And, you know, particularly for coronavirus, we there's a lot of things we do not know. Uh, We have a good understanding of what the incubation period is. In other words, the time from exposure to the time you might show signs and symptoms. But that is only just one component that's a part of the model itself. So there's just a lot of things that go into a model that without sort of the knowns or, you know, a real concise amount of information that we know, uh, there's going to be high degrees of variability in what the eventual uh, models are going to show us. And, you know, I think that's why we have to take all of the models with a perspective and not rely on any one or, you know, use any one of the tools to make our decisions for us. You know, this is something that's a, a new thing. We've never seen a coronavirus coronavirus pandemic before. So we're sort of starting from scratch. And really, unfortunately, that, you know, it it does not give us the opportunity to understand what tomorrow and the next day is going to look like. You know, that's a good point. I like your analogy to the hurricane. Let's hope COVID-19 goes out to sea. John, you know, you've, you've dealt with Ebola. You've dealt with West Nile. Sometimes people forget we're kind of the epicenter of West Nile. Any lessons learned from that that will help us with COVID-19? Well, I do have to say that for whatever reason, North Texas has certainly, we have certainly had our experiences. Uh, and, you know, this is something that we've we've started from, uh, you know, SARS in 2003. We kind of started that point. Thankfully, didn't have any SARS cases, but certainly had a lot of concerns. And particularly at the hospitals, there was a lot of ruling out potential cases even back then. Uh, taking us through West Nile. You know, this was the largest epidemic of West Nile virus in the world here in Dallas in an urban setting. We had the most cases that had ever been um, ever seen before. Um, So, 
not the best thing to be known for by any means, but it certainly has sort of told us that we definitely have experiences. Uh, and of course, Ebola, you know, uh, having that one case uh, really set our community in motion in response. And, you know, I will say that I think at the end of the day, all of these things that we've had to face in these challenges, they do make us stronger as a community. And I think what we've seen here in North Texas in this current coronavirus pandemic is, you know, this community, I think, is doing what it needs to do uh, and is responding effectively. I think we've taken that challenge of uh, staying at home and we've taken that challenge of physical distancing very seriously. And I, I think it has a lot to do with our experience here in North Texas. I'm going to ask you a real quick question. Should people wear a mask in public? Well, it's a, it's a good question. It's a somewhat complicated question, um, and I think the way I would answer it is first to talk about what does the mask do for you uh, and why do we recommend uh, wearing masks in public. The honest truth about wearing a mask is it's actually not going to protect you as the wearer. The, the effect of a mask is that it prevents, if you are one of those individuals that are asymptomatic, in other words, if you're not sick, you're not showing any signs or symptoms, but yet you are still infectious with coronavirus, wearing a mask will reduce the amount of uh, spray that your respiratory droplets would travel. So in other words, it's really trying to catch what's coming out of your own mouth and nose so it doesn't spread farther uh, and, and infect other people. So it is a little sort of Unfortunately, you know, it doesn't necessarily protect you, but it does protect people uh, that are around you. And certainly if you have to be in situations uh, where you're in less six feet of contact with one another, you know, there is a good consideration to make that an additional part of what you can do to uh, lower the transmission in our communities. Finally, what I would also add is I've been out and, and to the grocery store and other places and I've, I've seen folks wearing masks and I think most are not, you know, you have to wear them correctly. So, you know, keep in mind the mask has to cover both your mouth and nose at all times. And, and I know you see so many folks with it, you know, pushed under their nose or even down under their chin. Uh, it doesn't work, obviously, down there. The other part that I see a lot is everybody, because they're so uncomfortable wearing the mask, you're constantly touching the mask and, you know, maybe scratching underneath it. And again, you know, this kind of defeats the purpose because you could be introducing uh, whatever's on that mask, e either to yourself or, or, or touching something and then somebody else. So, you know, there's a lot of things you can do wrong with wearing the mask. And so you have to be practical and really you do the right thing if that's what you're going to do. And John, I wanted to ask you a question and, and I've looked online. I've, I've tried to read. I hadn't really found a definitive answer and, and you may not know, but Thomas was telling me he got a little upset the other night. He was in the grocery store and a guy walked by who didn't have a mask on and the guy sneezed. Luckily, Thomas was more than six feet away. But it made me think, if someone coughs or sneezes and they do not have a mask on, how long does that linger in the air before it finally comes to ground? Because if somebody sneezed and then you immediately walk through the space they sneezed, I would think you potentially could get infected if they had COVID-19. 
You know, this is one of the most challenging parts, I think, that we are uh, limited in knowing in terms of respiratory disease transmission. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me. It's always been fascinating that, you know, we have the common colds every year. We have bad influenza seasons. We have influenza pandemics. But yet we don't know with certainty this degree of transmission for many of these respiratory uh, infectious diseases, despite being how common they are, which I think is, is very interesting. They have done studies, and one of them is a sort of classic characterization where you induce a sneeze and you you try you watch the particles very carefully and see how far they travel. This is done at some laboratories. They actually sort of humorously call it the gazuntite chamber, where they actually you know have challenged these um, settings to see see how far these things pass and travel. You know, they do travel further than six feet. And in fact, you can cough and sneeze respiratory droplets a pretty good amount of distance. And what happens then is the air dries these wet droplets very, very quickly. And most of the time they will drop and fall to the ground pretty close. But some of them will evaporate to the point where they can float in the air. And the real question then is, can coronavirus sit and be still alive, if you will, on these floating, drying respiratory particles uh, as they float through the air? And, you know, we don't know. We don't know the degree of that. I do think that uh, for this virus, we've seen it probably more easily transmissible in this route than influenza. But I do think that for the most part, most of these virus particles are only going to stay within the six feet of distance. Uh, and thankfully, that's where a lot of these individual protections can, can make the difference. John, we really appreciate what you told us. And uh, we did leave a lot on the cutting room floor, so to speak. So we're going to have you back next week to talk about vaccines. And, and this is where you have to really balance looking very carefully at a good vaccine that has a good target and that also has a, a strong safety profile and also has a good duration of protection. You know, you're, it, the other part is you don't want to have a vaccine that only works for a few months. Uh, you really want one that has a duration of a longer protection period. And people are certainly lined up on both sides of the vaccination debate. Some say no way. Some say I'll be the first in line. We'll have lots of great information coming on the hot vaccination topic next week. You know, Thomas, let's pivot. Cardiology. We've got to talk a little bit more about that, especially with COVID-19. Well, there are so many news stories coming out now about how COVID virus is affecting so many parts of the body. And one we know that it definitely affects is the heart. We have a cardiologist from UT Southwestern. This is actually another part two. Dr. Amit Kira is going to be back with us in the next segment to talk about how COVID affects the heart and some things to think about to protect your heart during this quarantine time. So stay with us. Uh, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, you're going to hear Dr. Kara on 1080 KRLD and radio.com. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back to the human side of healthcare. We're going to continue our discussion with Dr. John McCracken. You know, John, in the previous segment, you were telling us about some of the predictions related to the recovery, what it may look like, how long it may take. But there really doesn't seem to be a true consensus on what lies ahead. 
What makes this recovery so difficult to predict? Well, we're facing a lot of unique uh, developments here, and they make forecasting extremely difficult. Now, keep in mind that we're facing not just the COVID lockdown, but there's some other potential major economic disruptors in play here. Over the last decade, the Fed has maintained a near zero interest rates and has injected a massive amount of liquidity into the economy. And they promised to continue doing this for the foreseeable future in order to, if you will, fight the economic consequences of COVID. Now, this one of the effects of this has been to create a very significant mispricing of financial risk in both the equity and bond financial markets. Now, that's eventually going to be resolved one way or another. So as I said, uh, savers know this. They've faced very, very low interest rates on their savings for several years. And as a consequence, they have reached for financial risk in their portfolio. Eventually, that, there's going to be a consequence to that. A second factor is that most economists would agree that we're probably approaching the end of a very long-term debt cycle. The, the current one began with actually Bretton Woods back in 1945. And it's led to very high and unsustainable levels of government and corporate and household debt. That's true not only in the United States, but in the rest of the developed world as well. And this doesn't even include the tens of trillions of dollars of unfunded federal and state health and pension obligations that can't realistically be met, at least, you know, not at today's tax rates. Now, all of these different forces are in play right now. The COVID lockdown, the financial market, if you will, repression, the end of the long-term debt cycle, how all of this is going to resolve is unknown, and there's no historical precedent for it. In this environment, there's only two types of forecasters, those that know they don't know and those that don't know they don't know. You know, John, you bring up some very good points. And as a layman, what worries me, I look at sales tax revenue. I know how the state of Texas has to look at sales tax revenue, real estate taxes. As you know, the one charge that the legislature has, and there's only one, They need to do a budget every session when they meet. And then I look at the bailout programs that were correctly done. I'm not suggesting they shouldn't have been done helping people in the payroll protection. But sooner or later, that's got to be paid for. All the lost revenue has to be made up somewhere. I think a lot of state houses throughout this nation over the next two years are really going to be struggling to balance their budgets. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, absolutely true. One of the characteristics of uh, Medicaid is that for every 1% drop in state revenues, there's a 2% increase in Medicaid expenditures. That's just a general finding across all the states. The problem the states have is that they can't print money. The federal government can't. And unfortunately, the modern monetary theory that uh, the Democratic Party has begun to embrace says that it doesn't matter how much money the feds print. So I think the states are going to be putting increasing political pressure on the federal government for, uh, you can call it bailout or you can call it assistance. But I think, once again, that's another political tension that we're going to see 
And I think the outcome of that is going to be um, very much shaped by the outcome of the presidential and congressional elections coming up in November. Good points, John. Thank you. I'm going to pivot quickly and turn to the healthcare industry and look at the lessons that maybe the healthcare industry can learn from this COVID-19 and what should be our key takeaways as the healthcare leaders treat not only COVID-19, but have to look to the future? Well, you know, healthcare has always been regarded as recession-proof, but it's not pandemic-proof. The hospitals today, health systems, are facing two very strong headwinds. Uh, First, in the past three months, there's been 27 million that have lost employer-based health coverage. Now, most of these are going to be switched to Medicaid or some subsidized coverage on the exchange. And secondly, there's been a, a just as you know, a dramatic drop in the number of profitable electric surgeries. Uh, And these are done mostly for uh, commercially insured patients. Now, the hospital analytics company, Strata Decision Technology, has estimated that the result of these two forces has been a $60 billion a month average revenue loss for the hospital industry. And that's a huge loss. Most urban hospitals, anyway, have traditionally relied on uh, high prices from commercially insured patients. The commercially insured uh, generally pay two to four times what Medicare pays for the same service. Right here in the DFW market, employer insurance pays between 250% and 400% of what Medicare pays. Now, I think that the COVID-19 outbreak has shown the vulnerability of this model. It shows what happens when hospitals are forced to significantly shift from commercial insurance to public insurance. Now, a Democratic president combined with the Democratic control of both houses of Congress, it's a future possibility, whether this November or maybe 2024. And as you know, the Democratic Party has moved pretty far to the left over the last decade. Now, with, with control of Congress, a Biden administration would have a strong chance to create a public option to compete against private insurance. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he very recently appointed a task force to take a look at this. In a public option, prices would be based upon a government-set percentage of Medicare, and it would be nowhere near as high as what commercial insurers are now paying. Now, that would be awful news for hospitals. Uh, my advice to hospital leaders would be you, you'd better start now to develop some strategies to significantly reduce costs. Everything should be on the table because if a public option comes, there's going to be a significant shift from very highly compensated commercial rates to much lower compensated public rates. You know, that's a good point, John, and many of our listeners may not realize, but hospitals are very lucky if they can break even on Medicare patients because of some of the things you described. Let me ask you this, too. You know, I'm a recovering CFO, and I just look at some of the numbers you just gave about the number of people that have lost their health insurance. I think you said $27 million. And then if they come to the hospital, of course, they're going to be treated if they come. But out-of-pocket expenses, deductibles, and coinsurance, they're probably not going to be able to pay. So not only are you going to have a shift towards potential other types of payers, you aren't going to collect probably. You're going to have bad debt expense associated with that, which is going to 
add to squeezing the margins of hospitals. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I think you're absolutely right. That $27 million figure is from the Kaiser Family Foundation, which tracks uh, commercial insurance or the commercially insured population. These are folks who have lost their job. They're probably many of them in the bottom half of the income scale. They're in the service industry. Their first priority is food and, and housing. And probably their last priority is to compensate for medical care delivered by the hospital. So I think you're absolutely right. I think that the hospitals are going to be strained not only from a shift from commercially insured patients to publicly insured patients, but those publicly insured patients are going to put the hospital at the bottom of their payables list. Do you have any nuggets of advice related to any other way to rethink or look at the revenue stream? The hospitals are under pressure, as you know, to expand even beyond health care into these social services that affect the health of their patient base. That pushes them into a business model that they have no familiarity with. So hospitals are being pushed to broaden, if you will, their expenditures without necessarily increasing their revenue base. The problem is their revenue is going in the other direction. Uh, I can't see commercial payers, certainly employers, continuing to accept the kind of cost shift that they've experienced over the last two decades as hospitals have shifted their costs or, if you will, shifted the burden of financing the hospitals from the public payers to the commercial payers. I don't know how that's going to resolve. I mean, the hospital industry and hospital leaders face some very, very difficult challenges. I think the one thing we can say is that the model, the health system model, uh, that has been successful for the past two decades is probably not going to be successful for the next two. And more of Dr. John McCracken's insights on an incredible interview uncut on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, all the major podcast players. Two big hot topics next, masks and vaccines on The Human Side of Healthcare.